Oh, five, four, three, a two, a one, a people of the world. Helen, welcome to marketing as a foreign language. My name is Kellen. Did you know today our guest canceled? <laughs> Fear not, for we're going to go old school. Today we're talking about Starbucks quitting Facebook over hateful comments. <gasps> Not hateful comments. YouTube shares new insights into the most commonly used opening lines for YouTube clips. I bet it's not people of the world. Uh, nearly two-thirds of Americans, according to an NBCnews.com poll, say that uh, social media is tearing us apart. And uh, last but not least, the main story we're going to talk about today is Twitter adding a tip jar to pay for good tweeting. I'm reminded, of course of Twitch and everything that's going on there. If you haven't swung by Twitch, you got to do it because it truly is an amazing platform. And uh, you can learn a lot about bits, Twitch bits. I was a chess streamer for, I don't know, like four or five months. I would stream at 10 p.m. at the nighttime and I would do it till about two in the morning and drink some coffee. And guess what? People would donate their time and money to help me grow my channel. Uh, they would give me bits. Now, this Twitter tip jar, we're going to learn just how similar it is. So let's dive right into the article. BBC.com. Twitter has launched a new tip jar feature that lets people send money to others on the social network. The company says the feature is, quote, an easy way to support the incredible voices that make up the conversation. To begin with, only a select group of people can receive tips. A group Twitter said was made up of creators, journalists, experts, and nonprofits. But the feature has also been criticized for exposing personal information such as email addresses. The tip jar function essentially adds a small icon to a user's profile. I mean, I'm reminded of Patreon and I'm reminded of Twitch. So how is this going to change the ecosystem? Well, I guess the big question for me is will Twitter take any of that revenue now Jeff Bezos and Amazon did that for Twitch. They take some of those bits. Like you buy the bits and then you give them, they're, they're taking a cut. And so all of these major platforms are going to become conduits of the new digital currencies of the world. And uh, I'm surprised it's actually taken Twitter this long to get there. They're, of course, afraid of major hacks because whenever you're talking about bank account information, outside of you know the standard, we're going to let you run ads and so you need to pay us that kind of way. But literally the sending of funds to users, um, it's a no-brainer. I'm glad they're doing it. I think for a lot of Twitter personalities, it's going to be one more way. They don't have to send them to a Patreon link. They don't have to get them off the website. It's good for Twitter because they're keeping people in the fold. It's easy to bop around the internet. So... According to the article, after security expert Rachel Toback highlighted um, an issue, let's see, if you send a person a tip using PayPal, when the receiver opens up the receipt from the tip you sent, they get your address, just tested to confirm by tipping somebody. Oof. So in other cases, the recipient's email address could be seen. So that is obviously not good. You tip someone 52 cents and now you have their email address or you tip them a cent and now you have their email address. Um, it doesn't take a marketer um, of intense 
intelligence to understand that that would be a way to garner a bunch of emails. So back to the article. Instead, Twitter said it was updating the information around the tip jar to make clear that some details might be shared. Yeah, but not emails. That would be stupid. PayPal, meanwhile, said the issue arose because the Twitter tip jar was using its goods and services payment option. Blah, blah, blah. So the new economy, the internet economy around entertainment um, has been a lot more fluid than I had previously thought, which is to say people are willing to part with their money. Um, some of the famous chess streamers who also are famous YouTubers are receiving, you know, like a hundred subs on Twitch at a time. That's 300 some bucks. No, it's five. The, so the person's spending 500, but they're getting like $300 in a pop, like boom. So lots of people got a lot of money and they are not afraid of spending it. And so Twitter is going to definitely uh, reap the benefits of this if they can pull it off. Nearly two-thirds of Americans, according to NBCNews.com, say that social media platforms are tearing us apart. I mean, come on. Since the dawn of time, have we not been tearing ourselves apart? Isn't it much more interesting when someone tells you a story about a tragedy, a tragedy, a tragedy, a travesty or a tragedy? Isn't it more interesting when people talk about the suffering? Isn't suffering clickbait? So... Are we really being torn apart? I don't think so. I really don't. I think that America um, is going to be just fine. But according to this article, 64% of Americans think social media does more to divide than unite us, a majority that cuts across party lines. So just because now um, more than ever, we're able to get our voices heard by folks that may not agree with us. I mean, before it was Thanksgiving dinner and you'd kind of go to your political parties and everyone would be in their own little world. Uh, but now because there's so much intermingling, isn't it interesting that prior to social media doing what it did, one could argue that this would solve everything. Ah, well, now we have an open dialogue. People are able to get together. There's more communication. There's more understanding. And uh, you've got, again, according to this NBCNews.com article, 64% of Americans saying that social media does more to divide than unite. So most Americans, according to the article, admit they use social media at least once a day, but they also believe platforms like Facebook and Twitter are doing more to divide the nation than bring it together. Now, I don't necessarily even want to talk about Facebook and Twitter as platforms. I'm more interested in talking about you and the way that you choose to behave. Um, the regulators are the referees. So they are going to come up with a set of rules. We're going to argue about the rules. At the end of the day, we're going to come up with new rules, but it, but it's but they're just the rules, man, woman. They're just the rules. So basketball has a set of rules. You can move the three-point line back. You can move it forward. You can change free throws. You can make certain moves illegal. You can be more discriminating about what's a foul and what's not. You can do all these things. However, at the end of the day, it's about how you behave and it's about how the others around you behave. The rules themselves, we found often have unintended consequences, which, which is to say that we ban alcohol and all of a sudden, you know, there's just a huge underground market. We've been fighting the war on drugs for how many years now? And where has this gotten us? So we, the people, change our behavior. And because we've done that, because we're more accepting, because we are more loving, because we have changed, now 
the world changes. We keep expecting the referees to make it all better. Oh, if they just pass this rule. That's not how this works. Back to the article. Overall, 66% of adults say they use social media once a day or more versus 33% who don't. The numbers are essentially unchanged from 2018, 2019. 64% of Americans think social media platforms do more to divide us. We get it. That includes majority of Republicans at 77%, independents 65%, Democrats 54%, blah, blah, blah. So black respondents are the one demographic split on the question with 42% saying it's more divisive while 40% say it's more unifying. So we're all going to spend more time on the screen. We're all going to spend more time in these spaces. If you see someone who you vehemently disagree with, that to me is fine. (laughs) That's totally fine. You're on Facebook. You see someone who's saying something. You can engage in a dialogue with them. In the past, there would be less instances of that. So it may feel more divisive because it's more in your face. But the reality was 5, 10, 20, 25, 30 years ago, it still existed. That difference of opinion still existed. But now you you might find that you're just inside of those conversations more often. People when they are physically together are less interested in having these sort of combative um, back and forth generally. There are some people that search for it. There's some people who want that. But by and large, people are now coming face to face with the opinions of others that they may not necessarily agree with. And that, of course, sets off a chemical reaction in the brain that makes you feel a certain way. And that particular feeling is fine, is my point fine so we're looking at the referees in the basketball game saying hey that shouldn't have been a foul or you should change this rule or that rule's stupid and we're, we're, we're obsessed with them when we need to be obsessed with our play we need to be obsessed with our game getting better we need to be obsessed with how we react to what's happening and i'm not saying there aren't injustices i mean you talk to any referee, and they're going to tell you, we do our best to call the game, but every game is different. A championship game is called differently than a game at the beginning of the season. A game where you've got all-stars is different. I literally saw LeBron James double dribble. The ref looks right at him, doesn't call it because it's LeBron James. He just goes, ah, we'll just forgive him that one. There are psychological um, pathways that referees use. And it can result in injustice. But at the end of the day, it's not the lawmakers. It's the players. The referees play a small role in the game. They're not even playing the game. They affect the game, but not in in the way that I think we're all obsessed with thinking that they do, which is to say, we go to Facebook and we say, how dare you Facebook? And we point the finger at Facebook instead of, doing what that incredible black man did where he went in and he, he talked to people in the KKK and he, he talked to all these white supremacists and racists. And it's one of the most incredible Netflix documentaries of all time. That guy's not the referee. He's not going, we got to go to Washington and we got to change this rule. We got to enact that. We got to do this. He's going, all right, I'm going to talk to the people who supposedly hate me and I'm going to confront them. Now I'm not saying that's safe. This dude's a saint. Do you understand me? There's nothing safe about what he did. I'm talking about courage. I'm talking about us having the courage to engage with people that might scare us, to engage with another perspective 
and take the ownership of that on ourselves. More ownership of your feelings and less casting aspersions and wishing and fighting against the institution itself and hoping they're going to change. You can dedicate your entire life to trying to get a rule changed. And many times that's a good thing. I'm not saying let's stop uh, calling out a ref that's calling the game incorrectly. What I'm saying is on a daily basis, our reactions are incredibly important and how we play the game is incredibly important. NewYorkPost.com article, Starbucks weighs quitting Facebook over hateful comments. Coffee giant Starbucks is reportedly weighing whether to leave Facebook over a deluge of hateful comments the company has gotten in response to its woke posts on the platform. BuzzFeed News obtained internal Facebook discussions in which employees wrote that Starbucks may take down its Facebook page, which has more than 36 million followers because the company is so frustrated by the response it's gotten to its posts about social issues. <laughs> ah, never ends. Quote, Starbucks is in the process of evaluating their organic presence on Facebook and whether they should continue to have a presence on the platform at all. A Facebook employee wrote to their colleagues last week, according to BuzzFeed, quote, anytime they post organically in regards to social issues or their mission or values, uh, Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, sustainability, climate change, etc., they're overwhelmed by negative um, comments. So this is just it. I mean, do you want to continue to fight or do you want to roll over? So if they want to go, so if they, these are issues that they truly believe in and that they're dedicated to just turning off the Facebook page makes no sense to me. Why are you just giving up on one of the most ubiquitous platforms? You're Starbucks. You, you are the infinite money machine. You are literally a drug dealer of massive proportions. And for all of my uh, coffee addicts, it's a drug, man. It just is. Don't drink coffee for a year and then drink three, three cups and tell me that it's not absolutely a drug. You see people lined up around Starbucks for miles. I mean, these are addicts addicts. I'm drinking my tea. I understand. I understand that it's a drug. It's caffeine. It is what it is. Okay. Let's not all hide behind this idea that it's anything other than what it actually is, which is a drug. Okay. Um, and because it's a drug and they're huge drug pushers, and this is the social issue. These are the social issues they, they want to fight for, for them to even consider it is ridiculous. And then the other thing is uh, they didn't make it public. So you can't be too crabby about it. In a statement to BuzzFeed, Starbucks spokesperson said the company stands against hate speech, obviously, but not, did not confirm that the company is considering removing its Facebook page. Exactly. So probably the New York Post got some people talking about, ah, we should just be done with it. Um, so this is probably just a whole bunch of smoke. Smoke and mirrors. Socialmediatoday.com, YouTube shares new insights into the most commonly used opening lines for YouTube clicks. Um, so I have young kids, according to Andrew Hutchinson, who's the author of this, which means he's exposed to a lot of YouTube influencers as his son and daughter go through the range of favorite channels. I am the same. Um, so how do they open their videos? Ex explained by YouTube, quote, you might not think about it much, but the first words a creator uses to greet their audience are pretty important. 
And the more popular the creator, the more likely that opening will become a signature sign-on. But of late, and a lot of other people have noticed that greetings in particular have become fairly ubiquitous. Hey guys, <laughs> which got us wondering about where it might rank among all other ways that creators start their videos. So, hey guys is number one. <laughs> hey guys, that is too funny. And it's been number one the whole time. What's up is sitting at number two. Good morning. Uh, number three, number four, hi guys, as if that's different. Number five, all right. <laughs> number six, hey everyone. Number seven, hello everyone. I start with people of the world, which is not on the list at all and unsurprising to me at all. Oh, that's so funny. So there you go. If you wanna start a YouTube video, apparently, hey guys. Hey guys is the path in front of you. All right, so as I mentioned before, our guest today did not show, which is why the show is the way it is today. Um, thank you for swinging by the show today. We love you, we appreciate you. We're gonna have a guest tomorrow. The guest on tomorrow's show is Brian Bogert. Hmm, Bogert? Let's go with Brian Bogert, shall we? Brian is a passionate human behavior and performance coach, speaker, business strategist, top sales professional, and philanthropic leader who believes in helping growth-minded individuals. So we'll talk to him tomorrow. Uh, for now, ladies and gentlemen, that's the show. 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Swing on by for chat. You know you want to. If you're listening to us on the podcast after the fact, we're proud of you. We love you. We'll see you all next time. Bye for now.